Good morning, everybody. This is an awesome day for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, it's awesome to see everybody. Number two, and I cannot stress enough how excited I am about this, the cicadas have come out. And that was the first thing, like when I got here early this morning to help set things up, it was the first thing I noticed that there were cicadas on this like cross back here on this tree. And I was like, like I've been waiting on this for like avidly for a good three weeks. Years? Yeah, well, 17 years. <clears throat> But I didn't know it then. I didn't live here the last time these guys were out. So I've never been here for one of these kinds of deals. And like, it's the kind of thing that I was excited about moving here 11 years ago. And now it's happening. We had this cold May. And so I was like outside looking every day and I could see the little holes. and was like walking by all the trees. I've been a weirdo about this, frankly. Um, and so what an awesome day. The other good thing about today, of course, is that we have now done five outdoor services here this spring and we haven't been rained out a single time and it's our last one. So like somehow, um, not somehow, providentially, um, this has really worked out. We've had lovely weather. So all that is great. None of that was in the script. So that's just two more minutes you got to sit through that had nothing to do with anything. Um, but anyways, to move ahead, I do want to say that it has been a tremendous joy to meet here all spring. Seeing you guys in person again is wonderful. And just being able, I think, to take a few Sundays to reconnect with each other as a church as we get ready for the season ahead has been, uh, it's at least been tremendously energizing for me personally after this long year of just doing things virtually. And I also think it's been a truly excellent way for us to be reminded that we're not alone and that we're not in this alone as a church. The revolution is a community. It really is. It's a community and that it's a community that God is still working through. And he's working through this church and he's also working through us. He has plans for us and he has plans for our city. And I, for one, feel so much more hopeful about those plans when I'm here with all of you. So on that note, I suppose, as for our teaching time this Sunday, what we're doing is we're continuing in the second week of our new series on the New Testament letter of First Peter, which the series is titled Nomads. And last week, we started things by taking this closer look at the opening lines of Peter's letter. We really just looked at the address line, which I guess at the time I thought that was like nerdy in a cool way. And now maybe it wasn't as cool as I thought. But anyways, we looked just at the address line and we learned a few things. First, we learned who Peter is writing to, which is what an address line does. We know he's writing to newly converted Gentile Christians who live in the Asian provinces that are north of Judea in the first century. And second, we learned why he's writing to them. And the reason he's writing to them is because many of them had become outcasts and pariahs in their own local communities, even being disowned by their families because of their conversion to Christian belief. And so right at the outset, he tells these people in this particular circumstance that although what they might be feeling right now is feeling like exiles, that the truth is that there's something closer to being nomads, which is where the series title comes from, which is to say that they're people who might seem to their neighbors to be wanderers and homeless, but who in fact are building their own sort of vibrant community together. And in order to try and make this point, Peter emphasizes that this group of nomads have become not just followers of Jesus, but more specifically, they become children of God. 
And as we move forward this morning, this is where we kind of pick things up. Peter's continuing to make his point that his readers, these nomads, belong not just at the margins of their community or at the margins of the story that God is telling, but they actually belong like right at the center of the story God is telling. So the question for us today is what, are the, what does Peter go on to say past the address line? And if you look on your program, you can kind of follow along with me. I'm going to look, I kind of broke it up into the chunks we'll be talking about. But this first section is verses 10 through 12, where Peter writes this. He writes, concerning your salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I actually can hear a cicada right now buzzing. I'm so excited. Oh, so anyways, back to verses 10 through 12. What does all that mean? Well, to make sense of it, I think we have to start by going back to that first major point from last Sunday again about the audience, right? Peter is writing to non-Jewish people. And this means that he's writing to people whose primary experience with religion where they live isn't Judaism. It's the state religion of Rome. And in Roman state religion, there are no prophets because the, the center of the religion is the will of the emperor, the person who's in charge. That person is like God's emissary on earth. It's their word that, that dictates what's going to happen throughout the whole, the whole empire, which means then that since emperors go on and change all of the time, that the word of God to the people in a religious sense is changing all of the time too. There's not a historical grounding to the way Roman state religion works. But Jewish religion at the same period of time is different because for Jews, there's this legacy and this tradition of prophecy which seeks to illuminate the stuff that God is doing in the world. And all of that means that when Peter says to his readers that the words of the Jewish prophets were in fact about your faith, that those prophets were serving not themselves, but you, as Peter says. He's again trying to make this point that you belong. You belong in God's story. It's a story that's actually in this way about you. The prophets are talking about you, meaning that it's about the expansion of God's people beyond only people of Jewish descent to ultimately include all people everywhere. That this anchor point Peter's saying of all of the Old Testament in this way is about inclusion versus exclusion. It's about this vision of a people that includes everybody. In our study of Hebrews earlier this year, the point that Peter's making is one that he always, or that the other writers always connect back to the promises to the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham, that his descendants are going to one day become a blessing to all the nations. Peter's readers, of course, probably don't know those words or that prophecy. And so part of what's happening is here is that Peter is excited to share that with them. 
to let them know, again, you're not on the margin of the story. The story has always been about the day when you get to come into the center. Even though you might feel like you're the new guy on the team, which must be how they would have felt. The team that you just joined is a team that has been waiting for you. So the question for today is what now, right? If you're now on God's team, if we are also on God's team, if God always planned to reach out beyond Israel to places like where you live even now, far from the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, then the question is what is our job here? How do we play our part in the story God is telling well? And this is the big question for today, and it's the one that reaches way past Peter's letter all the way to this yard where we're sitting as a rebuilding church in Annapolis in 2021. If we, if revolution is a part of God's story, how, how do we play our part well? And the answer, as we're going to uncover today, starts with understanding freedom, specifically our freedom. Over the last year or so, one of the things that, I'm going to get Evangeline's uh, approval on this, but one of the things that our family has gotten really into have been the Marvel movies, right? Fair enough? Which means that we have been all in on the new Marvel shows on Disney Plus on Friday nights. This is like our pizza and TV night. It's been a big deal. And I don't know if you've been keeping up with those or not, but the most recent of those was the show called The Falcon and Winter Soldier, which you might have watched too. In any case, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know it. All you need to know is that one of the two main characters of this show, who we'll refer to as Mr. Winter Soldier, so it's clear, um, his backstory involves being kind of brainwashed and used as this government murder puppet for decades and being frozen and stuff. It doesn't matter. What matters is that, as you might expect, as the story progresses, at some point our heroes are able to unbrainwash this guy and he's able to get his life back. And there's a scene in, in the beginning of this show where he's in counseling, which makes a lot of sense given that backstory. And his therapist tells him, you know, do you know Mr. Winter Soldier? That's not what she calls him, but we're gonna stick with it. Do you know that you're free? And his response is he says, free to do what? And I think a similar thing is happening here in Peter's letter. He's telling these nomads that they belong, which is really great, that God's got them, which is really great. He's telling them that they're free, but free to do what? How do we actually live out our nomadic and yet connected lives? And that's, I think, where we go in this next section where Peter writes this. He writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Which means then that the short answer to the question, problematic as it may be, is holiness. Because you are free, free from the pressure to conform to Roman state religion, maybe not a pressure we feel often, but true, free from that. Free from the slavery that we sometimes all feel to our selfish impulses, maybe that's a better way of putting it for us. 
Because you are free, you can live in a way that lines up with who God is. This is what holiness means. Things are holy when they are set apart for God, when they're of God. Which means then that as God's adopted children, which is what we are, that we are in this process of becoming holy, of being set apart for God, of being of God as his children, so long as we choose to use our freedom to be this way rather than sliding back into the life that we've been, well, exiled from in the first place. Which is a way of saying, I think, that holiness isn't something that we do on our own. The job isn't for you all just to like go today and just from now on be holy. Rather, holiness is something that's happening to you that you can participate in. That it is part of this new identity that you have as God's children, as his family expands, as he sets people apart for himself. To go back to our old friend, Mr. Winter Soldier, the answer to his question, free to do what, is that he and that we are free to change free to change, which means you don't have to stay a brainwashed government murder puppet, if that's your thing, you're free from that. But it also means you don't have to be a Galatian or a Bithynian or someone from the eastern parts of Turkey, if that's what you're a slave to. Maybe in our own context, it means you don't have to stay an American consumer slaving to keep up with the Joneses. You're free to change. Because we've been set apart by God when we come to Christian faith, our ties to these old ways of living have all been severed and we can actually live differently than we did before. We can have new habits. We can have new values. We can do this in some practical ways. We can be people of prayer. We can be people of self-discipline. We can become people of a personal hope, the kind of hope that sustains us in seasons like the ones we've just been through. And I think all of that stuff, all of that gets to at least the internal part of our answer to the question today about how you play your part well. Internally, you are free to pursue holiness, which is to say that you are free to change. But it's, of course, not the whole story because there's the other half, right? Like that may be what you're free to do internally, but what are you free to do externally? What does this freedom, which is aimed at pursuing holiness, look like in our daily lives? And so to this, Peter goes on to say in that third section, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, that's the internal part, love one another deeply from the heart.
and that's the external part. I think there are two big points in that chunk there to talk through. The first came a bit earlier and it's that amazing line that we read that was in bold in your program about living as foreigners here in reverent fear. So that's the first thing, right? We live as foreigners. The question then is what does that mean? I think it means this. I think it means that we try to live peaceably and in a way that respects that not everybody believes the same things that we believe. We try to live peaceably and in a way that respects that not everybody believes the same things we believe. As Christians, this means making space for other people's convictions. It means making space for other people's ways of seeing the world. It means being listeners. It means being curious, which is a thing we've talked about a bunch of times here. We have the freedom to be people who live that way. We have the freedom to be people who ask questions without feeling threatened by the answers to those questions. The anchor for this freedom, the anchor for this curiosity is our confidence in who the Father is and who God is. Which is to say, if God really is the creator of all the things, if he's really the creator of the universe, the one and only God who is out there, and I realize that maybe this paragraph got a little more verbose in practice than it was when I was writing it. So tune in for this part if you zoned out for a second. If God really is the creator of the universe, the only God who's out there, then you don't need to defend him. You don't need to defend him. And more important than that even, you don't need to defend yourself. Peter says here that God judges each person's work impartially. He judges each person's work impartially, which means that we can rest in his private relationship with us. An illustration to hopefully make this make more sense. As a parent of more than one child myself, I think I can see how this dynamic matters to the children of God that Peter is addressing. One of the most frustrating parts about being a parent, sorry, child who's here, but one of the most frustrating parts about being a parent is that my kids are always watching each other and judging each other, right? They wanna know, is my brother getting away with something that I didn't get away with when I was his age? Is my sister getting a privilege earlier than I got it when I was her age? This constant judgment. And the constant ratting each other out that goes along with that. He spilled his breakfast cereal on the table and then cleaned it up before you got down here. Cool. Like, what is the problem with that? But they want to make sure I know. She said a bad word two hours ago, and I've latched onto it. And I want to make sure you know she said it. Awesome. And... <laughs> I cared a lot more about these things like for a long time. I'm tired. I'm tired of caring about all the things. The point is this. At the root of all of that judgment that goes on in between my children and all the envy that goes on in between my children is a skepticism that they have about me. A skepticism that they have about us. Do we see the stuff that's going on? Do we need to be told what's going on here, which is really just a way of asking, can we be trusted to enforce the rules? Can Meredith and I be trusted? And I think one of the great things 
about what Peter is telling the people in the early church is that you don't need to worry about God's parenting of you. He's got this. You can focus on your obedience, on your faithfulness to him. You don't need to fret about your neighbor's faithfulness and obedience. And again, there is freedom in this to pursue holiness in your own life. So trust that God is working for the best for everybody because of his universal love for all of us, which you know about because he grafted you into a story that you weren't born into to start with. A God who does that is a God who is generous, who sees, who knows, and who can be trusted to love his children and discipline his children. The second big behavior-focused thing comes here at the end when Peter gets down to brass tacks. He says, do you want to live as people set apart for God, as God's kind of people? If you want to live that way, then imitate God by loving other people with all of yourselves. Deeply, he writes. From the heart, he writes. This is the most important and the most impactful characteristic of a God who has looked beyond Israel to bring even more ch children into his family. A God who calls foreigners is a God of radical love. So again, we can ask ourselves as we contemplate that external holiness, are you known by your love? And if you're not, do you recognize that what's holding you back are the ways that you are misunderstanding and misusing your freedom? Free to do what? Well, you're free to love without judgment or envy or bitterness about what you have been kicked out of or displaced from. You are free to love in the confidence that you are loved so perfectly. And Peter's going to wrap all of this up quite beautifully in the opening verses of chapter 2 here, and they read like this. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a good closing line, right? Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up knowing that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As we set out on the adventure of the year to come as a church, on the adventure of the next six months as a church, what I most want us to be thinking about are the ways that even in this hard year, we have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't say this to minimize hardship. Over the last 14 months, it has been truly important to me and to our entire preaching team here at Revolution to honor the difficulties of the roads that we have been walking and the various experiences that the people in this community have been having. We've spent time as a church talking about isolation and time talking about mental health and time talking about grief and time talking about loss. And we have tried 
to center so much of our teaching on us on Sundays on how we can hold on to hope even when we're experiencing these hard things and even when we're separated from each other as we've been. And I know that that's not past us, right? The emergence of cicadas in the spring does not negate where we've been or fix all of the problems that have, that have come up in the last year and a half. We are still struggling. But I also think that as we look to the months ahead, we need to remember that we've done more than just struggle. Even in the midst of the last year, God has declared his solidarity and his commitment to us. God has been present in this church community in ways that are unmissable. This past year, in the middle of a global pandemic, we led a statewide coalition of churches in forgiving $4 million of medical debt for families facing financial ruin. We fed thousands of our neighbors through multiple food pantries. We've prayed for each other. We have marched <coughs> we have marched in the streets alongside our most vulnerable neighbors. We have advocated and we have endured. We've worn masks. We've gotten shots. And here's the thing I think about almost every single day. In all of that, we're still here. We're still here. Our church has weathered the storm of the last year and a half. More than that, even in the last year and a half, our church has grown. There are new folks who have gotten connected to our community, even though we've barely been able to meet in person. And let's just celebrate a thing that is present this morning. Uh, there are babies. There are new babies in our church community. We have grown and we have tasted in the last year that the Lord is good. Sometimes it has felt like maybe just a taste. But we must know this year of all years that God is here, that he's here with us. So what if what we're most called to right now is to start living into the freedom that God has given us? Not the freedom to do what we want or to ignore this rule or that one. The freedom to pursue holiness. The freedom to have grace for our neighbor and the freedom to love everybody that we see. I think if we can be a church like that, if we can be a church like that in our city, then our city is going to flourish because we're here. And I think that we're going to flourish by living that way. And the truth may be, maybe we are just a bunch of nomads, right? But maybe that doesn't stop us from being in exactly the place that God wants us to be. I'll pray for us, and then we'll continue in worship this morning. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for incorporating us in your story, not just at the margins, but bringing us in to the very center of what you are doing in the world. And God, I pray that we will know what you are doing so deeply and so personally that we experience the freedom to listen and to love an imitation of you. That other people might come to know the same generosity and the same overwhelming acceptance and love that you have shown us. God, I pray that you will continue to help us see the ways that you have been present in the last year. 
both as a church and in our own lives individually, that you will show us yourself, show us your presence and your solidarity and your love for us. God, I pray that we will be moved by that, stirred by it. <laughs> Thank you for the cicadas. We love you, God. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.